Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Welcome, my name's Chris Fitch, welcome to Vulnerability Matters and to our new series on working in a crisis. Today we're talking about emotional crisis. Um, our discussion is going to focus on some potentially difficult and upsetting issues, including mental health crisis and also suicide. So if you do at any point need to step away from the conversation, then please do that. And remember that the Samaritans are always there for you as well. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year on 116123. That's 116123 or joe, J-O, at samaritans.org. Now, as you might know, our current series of conversations are about working in a crisis and the work that essential service providers in financial services, energy, water, telecommunications and beyond are doing in supporting customers in the UK during this truly difficult time. And this includes customers who, for a variety of reasons that we'll uh, discuss today, are finding it extremely difficult to cope with the economic impact, social distancing and isolation and uncertainty that we're all currently living through. Now, early research, including the University College London's March weekly survey of the social and psychological experiences of UK respondents, appear to indicate that across the UK, Although understandable initial spikes in anxiety at the start of the lockdown have now stabilised, levels of depression and reported stress have taken the opposite trajectory and, more or less, have now started to increase over the very same period that detail about lifting the lockdown has started to emerge. And most critically, and as we might also expect, these findings are socially patterned. Levels of depression, anxiety, and stress appear to be highest amongst people living with existing challenges or conditions, including those with mental health problems, on lower incomes, or living alone. And similarly, thoughts of death or self-harm were also higher among these very same groups. And while this isn't yet reflected in official suicide statistics, this reflects what we've known for some time now about the intersection of economic and personal crisis and disadvantage. Now, this can all be a little overwhelming to hear because we know working in frontline essential services to meet customers' transactional needs is difficult enough at the best of times. But then to factor in fundamental human pain, fear and despair means that customer emotional crisis is often the thing that staff, no matter how experienced or long in the tooth, often worry about encountering the most. But we can and we must deal with this. So I'm very pleased to say that we're joined by two people who very much know what a challenge this is, but can also help us help those customers in the greatest of human needs. So I'm really pleased to be joined today by uh, Nick Barnes from Suicide First Aid. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Chris. Just having Great a to be here. Yeah, I caught you caught you in the moment. Uh, now, Nick, <laughs> Nick's got a background in frontline social welfare advice for organisations such as Shelter. Uh, Nick's trained over 10,000 people in suicide prevention, including myself, uh, and he oversees the new Suicide First Aid for Financial and Other Essential Services course that's running in partnership with the Money Vice Trust. And Nick is joining us today from Cardiff. We're also joined by Dan Holloway, 
Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Dan is an author, a mental health activist, a trainer, and someone I've worked with now and also admired for over a decade. Currently an advisor to the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, Dan has also provided guidance to the Department of Health, National Deadline, and a range of other UK financial bodies, and he joins us today from Oxford. So the other uh, element to our, uh, our discussion t today is, of course, everybody who's joined. And there's a huge number of you uh, in the uh, in our live studio uh, audience. Um, please do um, ask us questions. This is a conversation. We're dealing with about 15 to 20 conversations from the audience in every single podcast, I think, that we've done so far. So please get your questions in early. <clears throat> Please share your experiences and you know your thoughts, and I'll see all of these on the screen in front of me, and I'll put them to our uh, our, our panelists. So, kind of, I'm just going to start off, and it's often, yeah, usually every podcast uh, that we do, our, our presenters and guests always have a backstory. I'm really struck by uh, your particular backstories and things that you've kind of led you to do what you're doing today, even if you didn't start out on that path. And uh, I was wondering, Nick, I'm going to come to you first and ask you about, you know, how you uh, got into this uh, area of work and activity and how it shaped your understanding of what emotional crisis means. Thank you, um, Chris. I think we all uh, through our childhood and our, our youth and our, as young adults, we, we, we mature into 30 somethings. And I think we all have experience of emotional crisis at points as children and, and as young people and then of course as young adults. Um, professionally um, I uh, worked for years for Shelter, the housing rights uh, charity and people would come to me uh, in acute housing need, uh, people losing their homes, people living in um, unacceptable accommodation, um, people that didn't have a home. Um, and Within the first uh, three months of, of, of my training contract with Shelter, just after the millennium, I lost my first uh, client, uh, who was a homeless man um, by suicide. Um, and that very, very immediately put suicide on the, the fore, if you like, of my landscape. Um, at a time when we just didn't talk about suicide, uh, and um, I, I, I spoke about it to my colleagues in, in an office of about 21 people, and it was very hushed and yes, people had experiences of it and, and, and it was very difficult, but there was nothing formally that we did um, at Shelter at that stage to, to prevent suicide. It was very much thought of, it was the domain of mental health services. I um, was invited to uh, become a, a suicide prevention educator through the MIND uh, associations. Uh, and a couple of years, uh, in my last couple of years of, of casework at Shelter, I, I was delivering training. Um, and in my last year of, of, of doing casework, um, it was around about 2009. So this was very much uh, the financial landscape of repossession and, and subprime lending. Um, and people were presenting in, in, in extraordinary um, circumstances of debt. Um, and there was one particular client who, who came to see me one, one morning with her family who, who really had um, so many charges on her property. Um, really, you get into the, the ethics of, of lending. Um, but she had no 
prospect of keeping her home. Uh, and that interview that I had with her that morning was was very difficult because I had to, to tell her that really, yes, we could stay off uh, 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 the, the the eviction warrant, but in reality, um, she and her family were going to need to look for somewhere else to stay. Now, it, what 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 was actually quite a common interview uh, at that particular stage. Um, uh, I, I wrote up my notes, and, and about a month later, was following up the file, and, and I rang um, the, the the client's home. Uh, and a, a man answered, and, and, and he told me, well, haven't you heard? Um, he told me that his um, his sister had died, um, and, and she died by suicide. She killed herself. Um, she killed herself about two to three days after she'd been to see me. Um, and I was in, 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 in shock, and I dealt with the, the conversation as, as, uh, as well as one could. Um, but I came off that call uh, and had to replay the film, the video that I had in my memory of that hour that I'd spent with that client and her family. Uh, and, and, I, and I remembered um, there was a point at which she said um, to her family in a coded way, um, well, that's it then. I know what I'm going to do. Um, and of course, I was busy taking notes with my head down. and I, I, I hadn't actually, I didn't process what she just said. But the family did, uh, and there was arguments uh, that, and, and anger from the family, and, and this was in this film in my memory of this hour that I'd spent, and, and what I realised was that there, was, there, there had been an opportunity during that hour that I'd spent with that woman to intervene, because what she'd done is she'd let everyone know that um, she was thinking of suicide, um, and, and, and none of us uh, had the skills or the awareness or, or the capacity at that point to intervene to help her get what she needed um, and, 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 and tragically she went on and, and within a couple of days she she died and that had a profound impact on me um, and when, within a couple of years I left shelter that, 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 that year and um, focused entirely on, on, on training but um, Within a year of, of leaving Shelter, I set up a, an organization to address the lack of suicide prevention training um, and the inertia from services towards suicide prevention. Um, the, the, it's someone else's business was always what people would say. Um, so we began to uh, develop a program and we began to really knock on doors and, and, and just say, no, we have to have the skill set. We have to ask the question um, and we have to support people um, out of crisis um, and help them understand that, yes, suicide is an option, but it's not the only option. And actually, um, it doesn't take, it, it's not that hard to be able to, to be with someone, to be present. Uh, and to create the conditions for change just by being a human being and, 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 and helping them understand that they're not alone. So that was my, mm. yeah, that was, that was, you know, that was the, the event from, from um, the last financial crisis that really shaped the next mm. 10 years for me. And I'm sure, I'm sure kind of, um, you know, many of us listening can think of similar conversations, uh, perhaps that didn't lead to that outcome where we thought actually, there is there's something else going on here um, and you mentioned um, the housing situation and repossession and I know that's often a concern that people have about 
these conversations where people are, you know, in, a, in, in desperation, they're, they're in pain. I was wondering, yeah. though, kind of one thing we're not we're not short on, thankfully, now is uh, is kind of information on guidance around suicide prevention. Things have changed considerably. I was wondering kind of, you know, what what made you think that something was different was needed? Uh, in relation to suicide, given the uh, suicide first aid course that you've uh, you've developed. Well, there was um, again, if you go back ten years, uh, suicide prevention education programs, training programs were very, very few and far uh, between, um, and there was no particular training solution available in in in, in this country. Um, that addressed the the culture here, um, the attitudes here, um, in a way that that was really um, acceptable to to most people. Um, so we we had a qualification opportunity um, uh, in 2012, and um, with a colleague, uh, a partner from City and Guilds Institute, we we uh, designed the the national qualification in suicide prevention. Uh, understanding suicide intervention, um, and 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 then designed the program to go alongside it. So we kind of bespoke um, from our experience of delivering suicide prevention training a European um, or or a UK um, culturally competent program that was um, able to be accessed by multiple sectors. Um, and and um, the, the need for that was really born out of the, the years of research we'd done in delivering different programs um, to great effect. But we always had this feeling that, you know, whatever we're doing with suicide prevention training, we could be doing better. Uh, and really um, attitudes from training providers, um, attitudes from participants, feedback, really just created this energy. Um, that resulted in, uh, in some ways, I suppose, uh, an accident of relationships. Mm. Um, that there was a, people in the right place at the right time. Um, mm. Resulted in in in, in a one day program being designed and um, successfully implemented. Yeah, and we'll we'll unpack in a uh, in, in a moment more about the the, uh, the the even greater focus you place now on financial services and by extension also other essential services in relation to that context of suicide prevention. Um, and we're very lucky to have you and Dan here for people to kind of ask any questions. Very remiss of me. If you do want to ask a question, there's a chat box. And if you open the chat box, you can send your question to us, uh, share your experience or let us know on kind of what you're, you're thinking at the moment. So do get them in early. And don't leave them um, towards the end. Kind of listening to all that, I've got kind of Dan. Now, Dan, you've lived the relationship between money and mental health, both literally and also in the work that you do. How has this shaped your understanding of emotional crisis? What what does it mean to you? Um, I think the main thing that that the financial aspect has has brought home to me is what I've probably called claustrophobia um the sense of of not when when you're in financial crisis as well as a mental health crisis you don't have the space you need to recover um you can't take the time to be well um 
you can't take the time you need to just to step away because there is no away because the financial difficulties you have come with you. So I guess I would experience that as a, as a, a, real, a narrowing of horizons. One of the things that happens to you anyway when you're in crisis is that it can feel as though all your horizons are coming in um, and knowing that knowing that the letter is likely to arrive any morning, knowing that even though you've probably got your phone unplugged or turned off um, and you've ditched your email account, knowing that if you were to open them or switch them back on, there would be hundreds of messages there that you can never escape from it. Um, one of the things that's most important for for someone when they're in crisis is just having space and time. And that's the thing that, that having financial difficulties strips you of. Um, so, yes, I, I think that's that's how the interaction between the two have, have shaped have shaped my understanding mm. or have shaped my experience. And you've been in that position yourself. Yes. What What happened? How was it? Um, what happened? Gosh, it's a long story. What happened? How I got into that? It was it was through. Um, I guess there had been a, la a long period of depression, which had led to some sort of a lot of comfort spending. But then, what tipped that over from from a long term problem into an acute problem was an episode of mania. Um, and I was a student at the time, and as the story goes, I ended up, I convinced myself I needed 23 different translations of the Bible. I was a theology student um, in order to do, to stand a chance at my studies. Um, so every day I would go out and I'd buy myself a new translation of the Bible, and this would be the one that would enable me to get to get a first. Um, and as I always say, I, I ended up getting a first, but probably not because I had 23 copies of the Bible. Um <laughs> So, so spending spiraled out of control very quickly, um, and bank charges racked up very quickly, and that led to a a big downward spiral, um, which which mm. came to a head halfway through my doctorate. And you talked about the horizons narrowing in, and that sense of kind of claustrophobia. And I was really struck by that in relation to that that crisis. Is that's a, a feeling of no escape? Um. It's it's not necessarily there is a feeling of no escape, but that's not how I would say I experience it. I, I would experience it as a, as a almost airlessness, mm. um, a sense of and something we've talked about a lot is how it's it's really hard to make good financial decisions when you when you're in crisis because you can't think about the long term because the long term feels unreal, mm. um, and. Or a lot of the things we're told about sensible financial management are based on doing the right thing so that in the long term uh, you'll be in a better position. Um, and that the claustrophobia there is, is, is a lack of ability for that to have anything, any kind of resonance with you. Mm. So, so the long term is just a meaningless concept to you. So therefore mm. trying, to, trying to do things that will not damage your finances in the long term it's it's sort of it's another thing about being in crisis that just feels like looking from the outside in so mm. as, as though this is you might fill in forms you might tick boxes but but this isn't you doing it um mm. it's something that has absolutely no emotional connection to you at all we've got some questions coming in for you but before i ask uh there's one from emma here but before i ask that dan you've written about the impact of the um of the coronavirus crisis 
on people who were already in crisis before it happened, including people who are disabled and people in poverty. Do you think these people have been forgotten about in terms of the, the emotional crisis and uh, financial crisis that they're living through? Uh, I think there are two elements. There are, there is yes, people have been forgotten within this crisis. One of the things that is very clear is that there are there is a lot of talk about how everyone's in this together. There's a lot of talk about community, um, but people who were already living in very difficult circumstances that's not how that's not how we've experienced it at all. And so there is that extent to which we have been forgotten and the difficult circumstances we live in have been forgotten um, within the media, by organisations, um, through policy. There's also a sense in which a lot of things are suddenly being, we're finding are able to be done that we've been asking for for years. And yet when we asked for them for years, we were denied them. So we talk about working at home, different communication channels on a lot of online communication is happening. These are things that disabled people, especially people um, with mental health issues, neurodivergent people, we've been asking for things for, for a long time and being told no. All of a sudden, this is being rolled out to everyone. And it's not that that is showing that we've been forgotten now. It's, it's sending the message that actually we've been forgotten for decades. Mm. And, and there is, therefore, it feels like there's a lot of trust, a lot of institutional trust um, that needs to be got back. We're getting a lot of a uh, response, people um, thanking both of you for your, your honesty and openness. I'm going to ask um, Emma's question, so I think it's really important. And Emma's asking, and I'll start with Nick and then come to Dan. Um, so Emma's asking, Nick, do you think the, the ability to have these conversations with customers in commercial settings is always trainable? And Emma mentions kind of that kind of empathy and compassion are not always natural traits. So, Nick, do, <clears throat> do we have to be naturals at this? I think many of us are just naturals at this. And, um, you know, let's acknowledge that many of us working in financial services are doing this every single day. Um, um, but certainly uh, empathy and empathic listening is probably one of the most valuable um, qualities that uh, an agent working uh, in a financial services firm could possibly uh, exercise uh, when dealing with people uh, who are calling and um, appear or hear that they may be in, in, in a, an emotional crisis. So can we teach empathy um, is a big uh, debate um, and I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Um, what we can do is build alertness um, and spotting the signs uh, and we can certainly talk about asking the question. So asking customers if we suspect they may be thinking of suicide, actually asking them clearly and directly, are, 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 you, are you thinking of suicide today? Um, those are, are steps that anyone can take. The response to that, uh, uh, the, the answer you get from a caller who discloses that they are because they trust the agent's sincerity and, and they feel that they 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 are able to talk. Um, well, that's the next step because uh, empathic listening, actually allowing myself to feel 
what that customer is feeling, uh, true empathy, um, that's an emotional investment from me now because uh, if you start telling me about all the things in your life that are causing you unbearable pain, um, such pain that it's driving uh, thoughts of suicide, um, that's going to have an impact on me uh, and, and actually allowing myself to feel what the caller is feeling is the biggest gift I can give that person because if they sense the person that they're speaking to really does understand how much pain they're in and they're able to sense that in the tone and the, the, the quality of the, the way the person's speaking to them, and do you know what? That often is just enough for that caller to be able to understand that it's not the only option and, 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 and um, we create conditions for change in the way that we manage these calls. So just slowing down uh, and allowing yourself to, to be in that moment and that might only be a few seconds that you allow yourself to, to feel what that person you're speaking to is feeling. But that mm. connection that's created by that, by that, that skill um, is hugely powerful. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, empathy, um, we have our own, our own thoughts around why some of us feel are more empathic than others. But I, I think um, building awareness of what empathy is uh, mm. and actually looking at, looking at some of the barriers that stop us from being empathic. Well, that's uh, really interesting. Uh, sorry to cut across you. That's really interesting. Mark yeah. has just um, come in here. I think this is a really uh, astute point. I, I think what we could also train on is bravery, being brave enough to act on a suspicion or a suspected disclosure rather than being afraid to confirm uh, and be wrong. Exactly. Exactly. Courage. <clears throat> it takes courage to ask a question. Mm. Um, um, I would much rather ask the question and, 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 and know someone is safe uh, yeah. if they're not thinking of suicide than, 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 than not ask the question um, with mm. the, the devastating consequences that might have. Okay, we're going to come on to a question from Natalie in a moment. But Dan, um, as a trainer and also someone who's been on, on these calls as well, um, going back to Emma's point about empathy, and some of the responses uh, that we get from frontline staff. Is this, what, what should we be doing with our staff in addition to what Nick has, uh, has covered there to kind of get them to engage with empathy and to, to get the kind of response that you might hope for if, if you were calling? I, I have a, had a couple of points I wanted to make. The first was simply to quote your research back to you, um, as you were humble enough not to do so yourself. Um, and that was the research into what makes for someone who is, has a better experience as, as someone working in the front line. Um, and I know you did a lot of demographic research, a lot of regressional analysis, and you found that the one thing that really made a difference was personal experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that is something that, I, I, that, that can't be taught. Personal experience can't be taught. Um, mm. it can, uh, so I think there are institutional things that can be done to make sure that the people who handle certain situations are the people who have that experience and that the people who signpost them to others within an organization are able to write, to ask the right questions to signpost them to that person. Um, I'd also say, and this is coming off the back of, of research that Barclays have done, um, that 
one of the things, empathy is a very controversial subject, um, especially in the neurodivergent community. Um, empathy is something that a lot of people claim and very few, and I'm very wary of it because it can often, there's a very fine line between empathy and gaslighting, between people saying, yes, I understand, and people saying, we all feel like that. Um, and I think that, that that's a nuance that, that makes me wary of, of feeling that someone is being empathic in response to me. Um, and one mm -hmm. of the things that Barclays found, which is really interesting, was that people are actually often happier talking about this kind of thing to something they know is a chatbot. Okay. Um, and, and that's certainly something I feel, um, that, that, that knowing that something is automated and knowing that something is programmed is actually going to free me to talk more openly um, than talking to a human being when I know through my personal experience that we live in a society where a lot of human beings see me and see my disability in a particular way that mm. makes me not comfortable talking to them. And that's really, is, that's really, sorry, Dan, to cut across, that's really, really interesting. I was having the same conversation uh, so yesterday um, around, we often think about chatbots as transactional. We think about chatbots as a way in which to kind of triage um, routine, uh, routine inquiries. Um, but as you're saying there, a, a bit like the, um, I won't use the term confessional, it opens up a channel where actually you know you're not going to be or perceive you're not going to be judged by the person on the other end. So you can very much um, get get to the matter that, uh, that that's uh, prompted you to get in touch. And that touch that, that leads us into Natalie's question. So I'm going to go, go right into this and do keep your questions coming in using the uh, the chat box. We've got a, a line of them uh, for our panelists, but uh, room for more. Natalie's. Uh, reflecting on the experience of, uh, of their staff um, in that they give them a mix uh, of uh, direct and indirect questions as prompts for conversations with suicidal customers or customers in emotional crisis. Now, staff are really comfortable with the indirect questions, but uh, get a lot of pushback. Uh, or provide a lot of pushback on the direct questions. I think we're talking here, Nick, about are you thinking of killing yourself? How do we yeah. how do we make how do we how, how do we make staff or equip staff to to be more direct to have that bravery and courage to try to address the matter at hand? I mean, I think through practice, um, we are conditioned uh, to not talk about suicide um, from birth. So, working with uh, stigma. Um, asking a question that really awful lot of people have never asked before, um, some would never dream of asking, um, with some of the prevailing attitudes that there are around the, the suggestion of asking. Um, actually, we, we, we have to ask. Um, the consequences of not asking um, uh, may change us forever. So it really is a familiarity. Um, I you know, still deliver programs uh, on suicide prevention um, and probably say the word suicide 500 times every day. Um, it's, I'm not sure if it's ever easy to ask this question, but I know 
absolutely it gets easier the more you ask it um i'm not sure that it should be a question that that is easy to ask because there's a there's a tonality there's a depth there's a reality here to the answer um uh that is extremely uh, important so uh yeah I, i'm going to have to concentrate and, and think and uh, ask uh, hear how I'm asking when I ask um, yeah exactly does that answer the question Chris it, it, it does I'm, I just I was just reflecting there Nick and Dan do come in as well I was reflecting there when um, I was on your course uh, so many years ago I found the hardest part of the course um, back then uh, actually saying even in a role play um are you thinking of killing yourself are you thinking of suicide um yeah. i think it was a it was a domestic scene i ended up talking about are you putting out the bins uh the, you know i can see the fox has been around again uh it was that chit chat hoping and then noticing that you look a little bit down hoping the person's going to disclose and that seems mm -hmm. to often be the kind of the predominant model and i was wondering how much of that do you think is 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 about the individual uh, and how much is about organizations being deeply uncomfortable with uh, the fear of offending customers or causing harm or detriment by by asking where, where, where does the balance lie i think I think we're still very on a on a learning curve here culturally um, again, if I rewind fifteen uh, twenty years um, the to, to have suggested to an insurance company in 2005 that you, all your agents are going to be asking um, customers if they're thinking of suicide, uh, would have been, they would have been aghast at that. And, and it just would have been an absolute no. And, and I can remember directors of uh, large firms just saying, no one will ask about suicide in this company. That's not our business. Um, well, fortunately, we've changed. Um, and it's it's been a profound change, and the landscape today bears no resemblance to how it was 15 years ago. Um, but there's still myths, and um, you know I'm not sorry to ask you this. I, I don't apologise for suicide. I care. Are you thinking about suicide today? Actually, how you ask this question, um, there's a skill to that, and and that's a skill that you can hone through practice. Some of those common myths and um, fears that prevail that create barriers to workforce development, training, promoting, asking about suicide to customers, um, they're taken care of in the way that the question's asked. Um, you know, most, most people thinking about suicide will let others know. Well, okay, mm. um, if, if I suspect, even a suspicion, it's like a radar. If that radar bleeps, the faintest bleep, I know I have to ask this this person um, as much for myself and my own well-being as for that person's. Because um, so we talk about big myth. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I just we got kind of um, questions here from Mark and Rhiannon and and Jez, and I think Mark's question's really interesting. So I'll, I'll ask you to give a quick uh, comment on this Nick and then Dan I, I think this one's really really interesting in terms of what you were saying earlier about um, the, the, how uncomfortable uh, discussing some of this with firms is when you're, you're in an emotional crisis or experiencing a period of mental ill health but 
just to get your quick comeback, Nick, and then on to Dan, Mark is saying that kind of the concern has been the, that balance between the uh, asking those difficult direct questions and kind of uh, not jumping into kind of too quickly uh, into uh, a question that cause difficulty. And Mark gives the example of a, a customer um, discloses that they're struggling with anxiety and depression, which is as a disclosure over the telephone or face to face or where there's some human contact is difficult enough. But Mark says we've seen examples where, you know, staff have jumped in and questioned whether the individual has had suicidal thoughts. They've gone from kind of zero to 100 in one go. How, Nick, how, how do we tread that fine line? And Dan, how does that kind of resonate with you? I think very, very carefully uh, is 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 the the answer to that. I uh, would not be jumping in uh, if a customer discloses uh, anxiety and depression um, within the, the next thirty seconds to a minute to 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 ask uh, about suicide, unless I felt I felt that that was what the person was wanting me to ask. So much of this is in the tonality, uh, in the way that disclosures are meant, uh, and the pauses and, 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 and our instincts here. And again, the way that you ask that question, the sincerity uh, and the importance uh, that you're going to attach to the response um, really is, is the most important part, because I probably could come and ask a customer within 30 seconds of disclosing uh, 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 depression and anxiety, I could probably come in and ask, well, have, have you, how bad does that get? Do you ever get so depressed you think of suicide? Could probably ask that in an acceptable way and it wouldn't cause offense if they weren't. And if they were, it might take them by surprise that someone's had the, 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 the courage, as uh, we were talking about earlier, to actually ask the question. So I think, I think this is down to a skill set um, and, and that takes practice um, and, and it takes training. Um, mm. But jumping in, I don't you know, know that's, that's scaring me. Um, Dan, it's a, Dan sense, does, it's a sensitive does, conversation. Mm, thanks. Dan, does that scare you as well? Um, Nick was talking there about feeling and tone being absolutely critical um is is that frightening for you that's that that notion that actually that that type of depth of conversation might uh, unfold over the telephone Un unfolding isn't a problem i think i i'm i'm a big fan of, of of the texas model um which i know you've you've helped devise which gives very specific stages in which you respond to a disclosure um that feels like something that, that that is a very comfortable way of leading someone through the process. Mm. Um, again, I have I have two worries. The, the first worry is is wanting as a customer wanting to know why I'm being asked this and what's going to be done with the information. Um, if I've had suicidal thoughts, this isn't going to be the first time I've had them, and I may have had a lot of bad experiences. Of talking about them, um, you hear. So uh, we hear all the time on social media and and from friends about instances where someone discloses that they've been having suicidal thoughts and then the police turn up at their door. 
Um, things like this make us very wary of, of disclosing. Um, if we don't know how well trained someone is on the other end of the line, and they don't, as part of asking the question, make it very clear what they're going to do with that information, then we may be very worried about, about saying something. And that might mean that if the question's asked too soon, we just say no mm. as a way of avoiding mm. the problem, rather than saying the, sort of the, the standard, yes, but I'm safe, which is mm. the way, our way of saying, yes, I have suicidal thoughts. Yes, I have them very regularly. No, I'm not going to act on them now, but if you intervene in this situation that might make it very much worse for me and that might mm. make me disengage um, mm. and this is something I know we talk about a lot is the real problem from my point of view is is, is getting people not to disengage because that's that's when you, re you really are in trouble and you don't know what's happening so I think mm. I think the question has to be asked in such a way that I know what you're going to do and why you're asking it yeah um, and again, yes, absolutely. I, I, I agree and disagree about the things about tone. I think, yes, you get into conversations where you know some things are safe to say and some things aren't, but I'm very wary of, of standardizing and of universalizing tone and language because obviously, again, being part of the neurodivergent community, we know that certain groups, what's perceived as, as, as normal tone and normal use of language doesn't hold and therefore if we draw if we draw conclusions based upon what we just as we know that actually facial expressions aren't universal although they've been thought to be universal for a long time and that therefore research has shown that neurotypical people actually misunderstand the facial expressions of neurodivergent people likewise with tone and with language I would worry a lot if I thought someone was relying on the tone of conversation and on the language mm. I'm using to to guide their response that's really interesting, Dan. Emma has mentioned uh, uh, cross-cultural challenges. Uh, yeah. We're defining culture in a very different way there in terms of uh, uh, asking those direct questions or engaging in that conversation. We've got uh, Rhiannon, as uh, mentioned here, and I think this is useful, um, uh, based on her kind of um, uh, her counselling training, um, never saying that you understand, but trying to make that connection with the individual in different ways. Obviously, everybody's um, situation is different. So how can you truly understand that? And Jez is coming in here uh, saying, um, asking about the data uh, side of the, uh, of, of let's call it the conversation or the interaction in using predictive analytics to intervene earlier. And I think we'll, we'll part of that one, Jez, and come, come back to that. Dan, I wanted to just ask you, it's kind of one of the pieces that you wrote for The Guardian uh, newspaper you wrote this about depression and crisis and uh, you've touched on this a little bit earlier but it's when it shrouds you you see nothing there's just you alone with your thoughts the far horizon of wellness is unimaginable so in a, a similar way to the question to Nick is why is it possible to say or do for a customer that you've never met you cannot see any hope horizon or change the situation well, I guess my answer is something that is probably not possible, and that is the thing that would make that would make the most difference is is for someone to say you don't need to make a decision until you're ready. Um, I realise that's obviously very difficult. It's in a way akin, I guess, to the breathing space campaign, 
um, where we know that um, Martin Lewis and, and others have been very, very vocal in this. And if you are in crisis, just putting a pause on things um, so that you actually have that space. Um, the problem there is, is that that crisis is defined in a very medicalized way um, and refers to being under the care of secondary health. Um, but I think that is, that's the thing that would make the most difference to me is, is it's okay, we don't need to talk about this now. Um, we can talk about it when, when the horizons are there again. Um, so, so, so offering a breathing space, so extending the breathing space scheme um, to anyone who is in emotional crisis, whether or not mm. they're under the care so of a mental health team. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that Money and Mental Health campaign is focusing on that community mental health team. But you're saying there, Dan, uh, it's, it's around providing that that space, thinking about breathing space, something that's very familiar to everybody probably on this on this call, but think about this in a different way. And also it's the term emotional crisis. And uh, Dan, I'll ask you first and Nick come in, is often read as a single moment, like a one conversation, a dramatic point in time. How these crises can play out over a much longer period of time. So how can firms best engage and support customers over time during that breathing space period in terms yeah, of both their finances and also their emotions? It can, and this is obviously, I mean, it's a linguistic issue, isn't it? Because because crisis literally means a moment in time. That's that's the meaning of the Greek word. So so it's an unhelpful term to be using um, because because it blurs this line between something that is ongoing and yes, a the same event can go on for a long time. I think I'm not going to give you a helpful answer, um, but I'm going to give what I hope is an answer that will help for new customers. Um, and that's to go back to, I know you've probably heard my example about purple paper clips. Um, okay. <laughs> which is to say the thing that the one thing that matters most about our long-term relationship is the first five seconds of our relationship. It's, if we were meeting face to face, it's the fact that if I disclose something to you before you kick in with your Texas, um, I can tell if you flinch. And if I can see you flinch when I when I disclose something to you, you will never get that back. The, the purple paperclip is, is an example of someone. If you go into a new job, um, you're ordering your stationery and you, you've got everything set up and you, you want your, your desk all nice and you say, oh, can I order some purple paperclips just to, to make things perfect? And your manager turns around and says to you, no, 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 they're, they're 30p more expensive. You've got to order the plain metal ones. Um, if they say if they say no to a request like that, you're never going to ask them if you're in emotional crisis. You're never going to mm. disclose anything to them because that relationship is already dead to that kind of conversation. And I think mm. this is this is the point I would make. If you want a long-term relationship in which customers feel happy talking to you, you will never get it back if the first contact goes wrong. If the first contact mm. goes right, then you'll be given a lot of chances later and thrown a lot of rope later um, to pull things back. And we, we know that people make mistakes. We know people say the wrong thing. But if you show in that first contact that, that you're willing to engage and that you understand that there isn't any judgment, um, then that will make the long-term relationship a lot, a lot better. And it's no coincidence that purple is the color of equality. And this is the uh, the 10th anniversary of the Equality Act. So um, that form of reasonable adjustment or a request for a paperclip in your, your example is a, is probably one to bear, bear in mind. Nick, Nick I'm going to kind of develop that point 
on and that's kind of about i mean it's very helpful having a kind of a, a kind of a, a an ancient history scholar uh, pointing out the root meaning of a crisis and uh, you know a single point in time as opposed to an unfolding conversation i want to go back to that kind of that first five seconds of that conversation uh, evolving what do we say to someone that, again that you've never met who tells you over the phone they're going to kill themselves what do we do we often hear that kind of <clears throat> keep a person talking yeah it's really important to keep them talking but what exactly do i talk about can i tell that person that i care about them that i don't want them to die can i talk about the reasons for them to live what, what do i what do i say um, this is important um we need to talk about this um thank you for telling me that and um, what's been happening I have to have a segue to give that person the space that they need to share uh, whatever it is that they need to 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 share that's that's driving this pain. Um, I mean, we we because of our history with uh, stigma and 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 avoiding suicide conversations, we 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 are, you know my my heart is likely doing twice its normal beats and I'm going to be, you know, the, I'm getting tingling down the back of my neck. Um, I'm going to be having a physiological response as well as an emotional response to, to the disclosure, likely. Um, so I've got to manage my state uh, and I've got to be there for what the person that's made this disclosure needs. Uh, and likely they need someone to listen and understand so I'm really the first. My thank you for telling me um, that this is important, uh, and, and and we need to talk about this. Um, tell me what's been happening. There's there's a, there's a there's a, a kind of there's various uh, segues that we we pick up through having conversations about suicide with people. Um, that you you build up a repertoire of responses that that just make this conversation um, comfortable for the person that's uh, effectively invited you to start it. Um, so, you know, the reasons for living, I'm not going to start telling someone that, 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 that they've got this, that, and that going on for them and that suicide would be, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a rational option for this person. So let's talk about it. You know, what's been happening? Um, likely uh, the reasons for living will emerge uh, as they begin to to tell their story, um, I, I will I will be reflecting and uh, creating the conditions for change. Um, because by understanding how they feel and what that means to them at this point that they've called our firm, um, if I can really listen and understand how they're feeling and what that means, and if I can reflect that back to that caller. Um, there's a connection there. If I get that right, um, the connection's made because the caller will feel this person understands. This person mm. actually understands how I'm feeling. Um, and I'm just going to be able to, to pick that up through listening. So active listening skills and empathic listening. I'm going back to that word. Um, empathic listening is the biggest gift we can give someone who who is thinking of suicide uh, mm. and needs Doctor Song. So, yeah, it's about, it's about being human and allowing yourself to be human with that person. Yeah. Um, it it's, may be. So it's, yeah. It's that emotional 
connection that you return to time and time again during the training and giving the uh, the member of staff the permission to make that connection. And I think uh, Rhiannon mentions the point about some of the, uh, the questions uh, that we might ask about the person being alone or who might be able to help them. And I think if people go to the moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability and look at the 21 steps uh, debt collection and vulnerability guide, the section on suicide uh, prevention, uh, which is for all staff in, in you know all firms, was co-wrote, written by myself and kind of Nick, um, uh, kind of together, um, and forms a basis, um, which is very much extended in kind of the suicide first aid for financial services and essential service uh, firms. I'm going to bring this to a close, and I'm I'm going to bring this because Jez, I know that we haven't asked your question about data, but um, I'm going to make you an offer and invite you onto the uh, onto the podcast series to talk about data. We like to involve our our audience and uh, turn them into kind of panelists. So just um, I'll, I'll drop you an email and invite you on. But I want to end with um, the questions uh, to both of you. Same question, but I'll start with Dan. And Dan, it, it is a personal question. What do you turn to in times of crisis for respite, solace or comfort? Um, I, well, I, first of all, I want to, to, to ask if I can be in that conversation about data, because that's, that's something that's very close to, <laughs> close to my heart um, and very important. Um, what do I turn to? I have a problem with positivity, with, with, with uh, things that are uplifting, things that have a survival narrative. Um, so I tend to, I tend to turn to things that I, for me, get that things may not get better. Um, we hear all the time about, don't worry, it will get better. But for a lot of people, it might not get better. Certainly, if there are structural issues behind your financial crisis, they might not get better. Um, and so I, I, I turn to things that, that tend to reflect that. Um, a thing that I... I, I love cinema, as you know. Um, the, the Guardian article you quoted from was on my. It's called the Consolation of Bleak Films. Um, so I, I tend to turn to films like that. Um, Three Colors Blue is my absolute favorite film, um, and also I love documentaries. Um, so the documentary. Um, I don't know if you know the Internet's Own Boy, which is the um, the story of Aaron Swartz, who um, who took his life when he was 26. Um, but was one of the great pioneers of the open access movement. And I think that encapsulates something important that I need to feel for me was that I need to hear about not necessarily lives that get better, but but lives through whom the world got better. Um, Nick, so, so it's a deep, sorry. So thanks, only because we're, we're, we're now just coming, running completely out of time. Nick, what do you seek solace in uh, from in a time of crisis? Um, do you know, I'm, I, I have a wonderful um, group of, uh, of friends uh, and through my own life experience, uh, raw, raw honesty um, is something that I, it's almost a baseline when it comes to personal relationships. So I, I, I turn to uh, people that I love and I know love me unconditionally. And, 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 you know, I, I've never been let down um, in, in, in times where I've needed support by those people that I have in my life. If I, if I didn't have those people, 
I would be looking um, in, 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 um, into myself um, and my own love for myself. And, and actually, do you know what? I've got a little French bulldog here called George. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, the last six weeks especially, I've turned to George quite a lot because um, he's someone I love very much as well. I think just getting what? getting in touch, getting in touch with the, you know, the, the, the very important things uh, that, that I do have uh, and I can control, which is my relationships um, with with people and uh, animals around me. Nick, thank you. So um, Nick, Dan and of course, George. Uh, and everybody on this uh, conversation to get today um, we've got lots and lots of questions here we could keep keep going but thank you very much for your time join me again uh, for the next in the series of working in a crisis but until then stay safe uh, look after one another and remember that vulnerability really does matter <laughs>